been established. The persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. Believe the ghosts? The first simply disappears. The other two died. Pretties. Welcome to another episode. I am your criminal researcher and non-destructive cult leader, Ashley Lana. Get ready for a wow episode for your cult. If you are a new listener, hi. Wow is an acronym for worst of the worst. Also leaving you saying, wow. These cases fall into a more graphic category and need a larger disclaimer at the start. But I will say you want to hear this case from the beginning all the way to the end, as the ending is very unexpected. So with that being said, welcome to Lullaby. Last episode, we discussed in a two-parter, Love is One, the cult of Mother God, Amy Carlson. That was fun. Got to discuss a destructive cult, because here at the Fear Cult, the non-destructive cult, we love cults. And delving into that was extremely interesting because the HBO documentary, although it was good, did leave out some very uh, destructive things that needed to be discussed. This week is a worst of the worst episode, a wow episode. Tonight's case is not a popular one for very obvious reasons. The details are awful. But these criminals exist, and they need to be addressed. The brutality of crimes should not cause them to be left under the rug and victims and survivors to be forgotten. So we are going to discuss it. The sources for this case, they were a little bit harder to get my hands on because most of the witness transcripts and articles are in Romanian. But I was able to get a source, Butcher of Bucharest, a serial killer in communist Romania, written by broadcaster and criminal journalist Mike Phillips, along with his co-author, Romanian political scientist and historian, Stigilar Olaru. I try very hard to pronounce the names in this episode. It's tough. <laughs> to me, as a podcaster, it's the hardest thing to do is pronounce foreign names. Beautiful language, very difficult to pronounce. To write this novel, Phillips and Olaru, they were given authorized access to Ion Romaru's case documents, witness testimonies, and historical files from survivors and victims, families, and friends. So in true lullaby, the Fear Podcast fashion, prepare for an information overhaul. So get comfortable, because sweet dreams are made of these. The following case contains mature subject matter, involving graphic descriptions of mental illness, self-harm, stalking, assault, vampirism, body desecration, rape, murder, cannibalism, and necrophilia. Please take into consideration that not all topics are suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. I was walking home at night, as I always do. It was raining. The occasional car drove by, but other than that, the streets were pretty empty. The sound of the rain on the houses was loud, I can remember that. 
on the parked cars, the tinging on the roof, I can remember that. The warm glow of the street lamps in the dark, that too. I felt like someone was following me, but I couldn't hear them. I didn't see them. It was just a feeling, so I kept walking. I, I noticed the sound of my shoes clicking on the wet pavement, which kept me entertained. Such a little distraction. And that's when it happened. I felt a blunt pressure on the side of my head and I lost all focus. It happened so fast and yet it seemed like an eternity. Something grabbed me when my vision clouded and when, when everything came back into focus, I was already screaming. The pain in my body, the shock, the shock of the rain hitting my body, it must have been what woke me up. I don't know how long the man had been on top of me, but I started screaming again. He didn't care. I saw many people looking out their windows, and a few people were standing nearby in the courtyard. They just watched. This is the case of Ian Romaru, the vampire butcher of Bucharest. Ion Romaru was born October 12, 1946, in the Romanian town of Carabia. He was the firstborn in a family of three children. His sister, Georgetta Maria, followed him in 1951, and eventually their youngest sibling, Cornell, was born in 1955. Ion's father, Floria Romaru, was born on September 19, 1918. He was recruited into the Romanian army during World War II as a common soldier, fighting with the Axis powers against the Soviet Union. After the war, Floria relocated to post-war communist Carabia, Romania, where he fell in love and married a young woman named Ekaterina. Floria became bored and depressed after his service in the military, and he began drinking. According to Floria's own account, he was angry and his state of mind was complex, from the fact that he had contracted syphilis that debilitated him from 1944 into 1945. He explained he evolved into an abusive alcoholic, who regularly mentally and physically abused his wife and three children after they were born. Sadly, this form of abuse was not uncommon in the world at this time. Eon's early years were rough, as accounted by those who knew him. From a young age, Eon battled poor health, enduring bouts of illness that required hospitalization. At just six years old, he fought against pneumonia, spending a specific amount of time confined to a hospital bed. Throughout his time in elementary school, Eon struggled to fit in, Locals did not perceive him as charming or a happy child. His teachers consistently reprimanded him for his inability to focus or complete his homework, often resorting to punishment. In the classroom, Eon would display angry outbursts, prompting his teachers to involve his parents. However, these meetings never aided in improving his behavior. When his mother attempted to discipline him, Eon responded with abusive behavior, mirroring that of his father's treatment of her. Later reports from Eon's trial revealed that his violent outbursts extended beyond human targets. He was also known to inflict cruelty upon small animals in the neighborhood. At the age of 14 years old, Eon experienced the humiliation of having to repeat the ninth grade due to his poor academic performance. The stress from his turbulent home life and struggles at school took a toll on his digestive system, leading to chronic problems that persisted into adulthood. Being older than his peers in the same grade made Eon a target for bullying, intensifying his already challenging teenage years. 
he grappled with the confusing and overwhelming stirrings of puberty, unable to confide in any adults about his growing sexual desires. The psychological frustration further isolated Eon, rendering him unwilling to engage in social interactions for fear of further rejection. Throughout his teenage years, he faced yet another setback. He contracted hepatitis, which caused liver inflammation and weakened his immune system. During this time, it came to light that Eon had engaged in a sexual relationship with his teacher's underage daughter, who was still a virgin before she met Eon. The scandal quickly became public knowledge, and soon after, the young girl succumbed to septicemia. This life-threatening condition leads to widespread inflammation of the organs, and often results in death if left untreated. After the death of the girl, Eon only intensified his withdrawal from society, deepening his seclusion. In 1964, when Eon was 18 years old, he and a few of his friends were arrested for stealing melons from a local state enterprise. When Eon was caught by a security guard, Eon brutally attacked the guard, leading to a charge of aggravated theft and assault that resulted in a five-month prison sentence. After his release, he graduated from high school and he enlisted in the Romanian army. Unfortunately, only two months into his military training, Eon contracted gastritis, causing his stomach lining to become painfully inflamed which only grew more debilitating with drill intensity increasing. When Eon was sent to the hospital, he was diagnosed with severe stomach ulcers. He was discharged from the army and spent two months in the hospital. The marriage between Eon's parents eventually ended in divorce after Floria claimed to have caught his wife cheating, prompting Floria to leave Karabia and move to Bucharest. There he found employment working as a tram and bus operator. In 1966, 20-year-old Eon enrolled into the University of Ergonomic Sciences in the field of veterinary medicine in Bucharest. He challenged the entrance exam and barely passed with 5.3 out of 10. Eon's professors characterized him as, quote, shy and semi-literate with a very poor vocabulary and an extremely narrow set of interests. Eon would have to repeat his second and third year of studies to make up for lost ground despite skipping classes. He did not have any close friends. He had poor hygiene and lacked healthy interests outside of university. The faculty secretary had told Eon's father, Floria, that Eon began rebelling after losing any chance at a scholarship. This led Eon to engage in concerning behavior, such as stalking young women around campus. By 1968, professors began asking fellow classmates to befriend Eon in hopes of boosting his disposition. A young man named Pitagora shared a dorm with Eon for a short period of time. He would later describe Eon's personality in a testimony, saying, quote, Eon had already repeated a year when he became part of the group I was in. I saw he was withdrawn, and I put this attitude down to the fact that he had repeated the year. The professors asked us to get closer to him so that he would be more sociable. But with all our efforts, we could not make him get together with us. He stayed like that, withdrawn, silent, and pessimistic. Around the month of November, I went to sleep in the room. There was another colleague who stayed in the room with us, and I remember Eon would wake up in the night with such a start that he woke us up as well. During the period of time I stayed in the room with him, he was out many times. To be precise, he went out around 11 p.m., coming back in the morning around 4 a.m. Upon being asked where he was going, he gave only evasive answers. Normally, he wouldn't return through the door. He knocked on the window. We would open the window and he would climb inside we would get dressed and go to class and he would either go to sleep or come to class later, end quote. What Eon was doing at night was he was riding the tram network around Bucharest to learn the city inside and out. He returned in the morning and was too exhausted to go to his classes. Another roommate of Eon and Pythagora, a man named Sukra, recalled a time when Eon was pacing the room one night after hearing noises outside. 
What made this even more strange was Eon had stepped on a bottle and broke it. The glass cut deep into his bare feet and legs. To the roommate's amazement, Eon never showed any reaction to the incident. He continued pacing around the room with glass shoving deeper into his feet. Eon's behavior didn't stop there. Once in public, fellow students began accusing Eon of having syphilis. Eon became enraged at the harassment and pulled out a scalpel, proceeding to cut into his own body in attempts to prove his blood was not contaminated. Students at this point were not exactly sure how to handle Eon's personality, and most decided just to keep their distance. His dorm neighbors recounted incidents where Eon would stay awake all night and eavesdrop at bedroom doors or windows whenever another student in the dorm had a female visitor. Eon would mutter sexually inappropriate words to himself against the frame like an animal. This act made Eon feel sexual tension and excitement. By the late months of 1968, Eon's behavior towards women began to unsettle those around him. One student named Dan Doninescu attempted to befriend Eon, only to be met with indifference. Dan was dating a fellow student named Diona, who openly expressed her disdain for Eon years later. Diona admitted that Eon would often approach her with random inquiries about other relationship statuses of female students, particularly those she didn't even know. This made her uneasy. She started making a point to distance herself from Eon as they were never friends and she actively avoided him. Diona's public disdain for Eon resulted after a specific incident occurred when she was sitting with her boyfriend, Dan, out of the blue, Eon stormed up to them and brazenly asked Diona out for a coffee date, despite being fully aware of her relationship with Dan. The couple were left in shock, unable to comprehend Eon's audacity. Diona vividly remembered the moment. Eon's complete disregard for boundaries and social norms disrupted her deeply. She recalled the exact moment, saying, quote, What struck me especially was his brute attitude when Dan tried to explain to him that the normal conditions for this situation were non-existent. It was a chilly evening in the fall of 1969 when a waitress named Florica Marku was returning home after visiting a friend in Bucharest. She found herself waiting for a bus around 9.30 p.m. As she stood there, she couldn't help but notice a young man in a dark suit and ski-type coat. His hands were tucked into his pockets and he was watching her intently. Upon closer inspection, Florica realized that he was a student, a student who frequented the canteen where she worked. Though she did not yet know his full identity, she would later discover that he was 23-year-old Eon Romaru. Upon approaching Florica, Eon uttered the words, I kiss your hand. With those words, Eon lunged at her, grabbing her forearm. Instinctively, Florica fought back and managed to free herself just as a bus arrived. She hastily boarded and found a seat, glancing ahead, only to find that Eon had followed her onto the bus. He sat down and his dead eyes fixated on her without blinking. When the bus reached Florica's stop, she attempted to calmly get off and proceeded down the sidewalk, but she soon realized it was not just her own footsteps she heard echoing on the pavement. Glancing behind her, she saw Eon walking no more than two feet behind, his silence unsettling. Fear gripped her as she quickened her pace, desperate to change her path and prevent him from discovering where she lived, dreading the thought of him breaking into her home while she slept. For over an hour, Florica maneuvered around the streets, ensuring she kept a safe distance from the strange man. Her heart raced as she searched for a place to hide crossing streets and scanning her surroundings. Finally, she stopped in a line of vehicles. Seizing the opportunity, she ducked behind them, holding her breath. The footsteps of her stalker grew nearer, and time seemed to stand still. Florica remembers that terrifying night, saying, quote, Around 11 p.m., I managed to hide in the middle of some cars which were parked, and I could see from there that the young man had lost my trail and was extremely desperate to find me. While he was following me, I tried to tell him that I was living with my mother and that I was not in the mood for what he wanted, 
but all the time he answered no word. The next day, Florica had told her coworker at the canteen about the incident. The colleague explained to Florica that the young man who was following her was the student Ionormaru, the campus villain. He had verbally harassed the girl once before when she confronted him about using a fake meal ticket. Florica noted that Eon avoided her at all costs after that at the canteen. Eon had attempted to get a free meal from another server only to be rejected. The administrator nearby began arguing with Eon over his behavior, only to have Eon threaten him, saying that he was going to murder him. A student canteen waitress recalled the event saying, quote, he didn't want to give him food without a ticket, saying that the administrator would die at his hands because he would not give up until he butchered him. After these threats, they gave Eon his meal, but for 30 minutes, the student held his head in his hands without looking at the food and without eating, just grinding his teeth, and afterwards, he only ate a very little. In October 1969, Eon reached out to his father, Floria, seeking advice regarding his struggles with relationships. Eon complained that women did not show him any consideration and that he had been very unlucky in finding a romantic partner. In an attempt to help, his father, Floria, made several efforts to set him up on blind dates with attractive women. However, Eon continuously turned down these offers, fearing that the women would not be willing to engage in immediate sexual intercourse with him. One incident occurred during Eon's visit to his mother and sibling's house in Karabia. Georgette, Eon's sister, had a young female friend over as a guest. In an aggressive manner, Eon tried to isolate the girl in a bedroom, presumably with sexual intentions. This unsettling behavior led Eon's siblings to establish a rule, ensuring that their friends would never be left alone with him. Eon harbored resentment towards his siblings after that, due to the immediate rejection of his advances and their protective measures. Later, another incident unfolded. When Georgette visited Eon at his university dorm in Bucharest, she was accompanied by a female. Eon was visibly annoyed and allowed Georgette to enter while instructing that her friend had to wait outside. While Georgette questioned the reasoning, Eon casually remarked that there was no point of the friend coming in because she would never be interested in having sex with him. Eon's father, Floria, added insight into his son's behavior, telling investigators, quote, in the discussions I had with my boy in regards to his relations with women, I recall he doesn't like to wait or to be postponed, but that he wished that immediately after he met a woman, she would give in to him. I asked why all the hurry, and he said his blood was too hot and he felt this need. Gloria had attempted to seek advice from Eon's university professors about his son's views on women, and they only proposed to, quote, marry Eon off. Gloria discussed Eon's behavior with two other doctors at the student clinic, but they said the same thing, that it was too late for him, and they should just marry him off. When Gloria told Eon to find a woman that was interested in marrying him first, Eon only responded by saying, what, do these women give in as fast as I want? This deviant progression with Eon is a paint by numbers. You can see where he starts and see the pattern of how it's gonna end. And the more details I give you, the clearer this will become. And this is why I go so hard on these case examinations. Every key detail is a link to the next phase of the progression. This is how criminal profilers can immediately narrow down suspects and cases to save future victims. Eon's past, it sheds light on his deep-seated frustration and the anger stemming from his inability to fulfill his sexual desires. He doesn't seek out professional help, and when his father does, no one takes them seriously because, in the 1960s, Romania doesn't want to have the idea of mental illness stigmatize their reputation as a country. Also, it's not only Romania that has this mindset at this time, but other countries did as well. Mental health was not advocated as it is today. 
Here's a quote from the novel Romaru the Butcher of Bucharest that helped clarify what I am trying to say. The question, how was Ian Romaru able to escape any kind of social notice for as long as he did? Author Mike Phillips answers saying, quote, the solution may be that this was kind of the perfect storm in which the history of the region and the family, neglected childhood, and his perceived instability met with the ideology of a dogmatic regime to nourish the insanity of his activities. It may be that if the state had been more accommodating towards the diagnosis and treatment of mental problems, eons probably would have been identified and dealt with earlier. The ideology of the regime, however, simply did not allow for the idea that the perfect socialist state could be the incubator of mental illness. It may be the case that if Eon had not emerged from an impeccable proletarian background, his behavior and his disability might have been challenged earlier along with his almost total failure at school." End quote. Eon's future sexual crimes were described by psychologist Dr. Tutorel Butoy as Eon Romaru's compensation for having an inferiority complex that he felt since his childhood. So all his insecurities stemmed from how he lacked social skills as a kid, from his father being mentally and physically abusive, specifically towards his mother, a woman, according to psychologists. There's testimony that Eon would mirror the objectification that his father placed towards his mother in the home. Growing up, Eon never had any healthy parental figures to teach him how to have and form a good relationship. So when he was held back during the time of puberty, he was a hormonal mess and he felt that he couldn't talk to anyone, which resulted in him attempting to teach himself with what he saw at home, abuse and objectification. Later, professors, classmates, doctors, and his family confirmed that Eon was relatively poor, working class, a social misfit, and had a dysfunctional relation with women. Now, his misguided approach further alienated him from healthy relationships, which only fueled his already troubled mindset. The progression, you can see it. Eon starts by feeling shy and bashful around women, and then he avoids them. Okay, he progresses, his sexual frustration grows, and he begins bluntly approaching women for sex without reading their social cues and results in him being flat up told to fuck off pervert. This rejection, well, Eon couldn't take it. And he started this bubbling sadistic hatred where he wants to hurt women so he can feed this lust and feel powerful in a sadistic relationship with women that he can control. Into adulthood, Ian didn't know how to control his sexual frustration, and no one pushed for him to seek proper treatment for his darkening mind. The motivations and behaviors for serial killers, they can vary greatly, and it's not possible to provide a definitive answer that applies to all cases. However, from what I've read, there are theories that attempt to explain why some serial killers may commit sexual crimes despite feeling insecure about women. One possible explanation is that committing sexual crimes allows the killer, in this case, Ian Romaru, to exert a sense of power and control over his victims through sexual gratification that he cannot get on a normal day-to-day -day basis because of his mental illness and insecurities. Some serial killers can have this feeling of inadequacy, which particularly in their relationships with women. Eon, he engaged in sexual violence. It hasn't particularly happened yet, but it, it goes down and it's him asserting his dominance and finding temporary excitement and relief from his own feelings of being meek and powerless towards women. When Eon was in university, he was diagnosed with epilepsy, as well as a reactive nervous system and throat spasms. 
And these are painful contractions of the muscular tubing that connects the mouth to the stomach. And they can last anywhere from minutes to hours. It was proven during his trial that epilepsy did not block his ability to realize right from wrong. So he couldn't say that epilepsy was the reason why he committed his crimes. That part just gets insane. Wait for it. Eon was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, which would later explain his impulsive, irresponsible criminal behavior, the disregarding of feelings of others, his distorted view on sexuality and or inability to form healthy relationships. And this just highlights that. Important to note, I've said it once, I'll say it a million times, I'll never get bored of it. Not every person diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder is a criminal or will resort to criminal behavior, period. At this point, Eon is socially and sexually revved up. He has many opportunities handed to him to go on blind dates, but he's terrified of rejection and he declines them. So Eon, in his twisted mind, figures that he must progress his actions from simple fantasies into sadistic, dangerous realities. In May 1970, Elena Opera, a 25-year-old waitress, finished her shift at the Pandura Benicia restaurant. It was a rainy evening. She couldn't shake this feeling of unease. Just a week prior, she had been followed home by a young man on the bus who had tried to engage her in conversation. She had managed to escape from him by hitting him with her bag and running away. Since then, she had been cautious and had her coworker drive her home. However, on this night was the exception and she had to walk home alone. Around 2.30 a.m., as Alina entered the courtyard of her complex, she suddenly heard the sound of footsteps approaching rapidly behind her. Before she could react, she was struck over the head with a heavy metal rod, followed by being repeatedly stabbed with a large knife soon after. When she looked up at the man, she seen that it was the exact same person who had been stalking her the week before. Elena began screaming as loud as she could as she was being beaten. A nearby dog started barking, which caught the attention of Elena's neighbor, Stoyan Kovachev, who looked out his front door. Stoyan later told police that he initially assumed the children from the building were having fun with a woman. However, his perspective changed when he saw a shadow figure throwing an object in a nearby woodpile. That man then proceeded to drag the woman's body out the courtyard. Startled by this sight, Stoyan began approaching the scene, causing the man to ask the woman if she was dead before abandoning her and walking away. Realizing something was terribly wrong, Stoyan recognized that the woman was Elena Opra and quickly sought help from the landlord. Elena, barely conscious, pleaded to be taken to the hospital and an ambulance arrived at 3.30 a.m. But tragically, that was not fast enough. Elena passed away just 15 minutes after she arrived at the hospital. In the early hours of June 2nd, 1970, a 21-year-old woman was leaving her shift at the Maricetti restaurant, accompanied by a friend. As they boarded the night bus, they noticed a man in the back who seemed fixated on them. The one woman mentioned that she may have seen him following her on the bus the previous week, but couldn't be sure. When she got off at her stop, the man vanished, causing her to feel uneasy. She hurried across the street alone towards the courtyard complex, only to realize that the man was following closely behind her. Panic set in as he suddenly started attacking her with a metal rod, knocking her unconscious. He then threw her over his shoulder and began moving towards the parked transport truck on the road. Despite five individual witnesses observing the brutal attack, no one intervened to help the woman. Varika Bazavan and her mother witnessed the assault from the front yard, but were too afraid to intervene. A landlord saw the incident, but was too scared to act as he was a senior citizen. An 18-year-old student emerged from his house to see what was happening, 
along with other witnesses who found the victim's bag in the courtyard. Instead of calling police or assisting the woman, they spent time looking through her belongings in the street as she continued to struggle down the street crying for help. Meanwhile, using the parked truck as cover, Ion Romaru forced the woman to undress at knife point. He then carried her to the Spenta Veneri Cemetery in Bucharest, where he violently threw her over a fence. In her battered, weakened state, the woman hit her head on a tombstone, rendering her semi-conscious. Ion started pushing her over, forcing her to kneel in front of him next to a freshly dug grave, warping his father's advice in his mind. Ion demanded the woman promise to marry him, threatening to harm her if she refused. Fearing for her life, she quickly agreed, reluctantly taking his hand in a desperate measure to save herself. Ion proceeded to rape the woman and leaving wounding bite marks on her thighs and buttocks. Once the assault was over, Ion left. The woman found her strength to limp away and leave the gated cemetery. As she made her way down the block, Ion started chasing her down. He made her hold out her forearm, where he began to stab it with a knife three times. The woman went into shock as Ion pressed his lips to the puncture wounds and began drinking her blood. Between breaths, Ion made her promise to meet him the next day at 2 p.m. outside of a clothing store downtown. Desperate to survive, she agreed, and the two started walking towards her complex. As they approached, a delivery truck stopped on the road. The driver noticed a bleeding naked woman trying to pull away from the man beside her, and she managed to climb into the truck while Ion Romaru fled the scene. Once at the hospital, the medical staff and the police took her statement. She informed the authorities that she had been attacked by the same man the previous year. The woman who was just attacked was Florica Marku. Eon had been stalking her for over half a year before he decided to sexually assault her that night. That is so scary. In Bucharest, rumors swirled around about a vampire preying on young women who was raping and murdering them under the cover of darkness. So despite these crimes, the authorities dismissed the reports, leading to a lack of coverage from the local media. Author Mike Phillips, the man who wrote the book Romaru Butcher of Bucharest, he was able to access police and secret police records, along with survivor and family testimonies, and uncovered the truth behind how Ion Romaru thrived unnoticed. All the inefficiencies of the authorities and the tight control of the state-run media during the communist regime of this era allowed Ion Romaru to go unchecked. Author Mike Phillips, he told the Enfield Independent paper, quote, Ion Romaru was disturbed, mad even, while most of society tried not to even notice. It tells you a lot about the authorities of that time, about the relative ignorance, about psychiatric conditions, and you have to remember he was a proletarian, working class, you have to read it in those terms. He came from healthy, working-class origins, from rural peasant stock, and everyone in society was bending over backwards to accommodate people like that. The state-ruled media was full of propaganda, and the censorship did not encourage articles about criminals and law-breaking. It was considered that in a socialist society, there were no crimes and no criminals, or at least such events were rare and not done by the working class. There was a denial it was going on, there was a reluctance for people to get involved in these things that did not concern them directly, especially when it might lead to further involvement with the authorities, end quote. This is truly one of the scariest cases I've ever covered because many of the victims of Ian Romaru, as we will see, had multiple witnesses during the assaults who were too reluctant to get involved to the point of not even calling the police while women are screaming. It's horrifying. 
If a person is being brutally attacked, at least call the police. <laughs> at least try to get help if you don't feel safe to get involved. You in the blue t-shirt and jeans, call 911 or 112 as it is in Romania. That's stuff. So something I want to address in this episode is the safety of being aware and vigilant during your commutes, whether you're alone or with someone is really important to protect yourselves when you're outside. I don't care what your age is. I don't care what your gender is. Take notes. This is important for your safety. Number one, plan your route in advance. Okay, planning your route, this allows you to choose well-populated areas with good lighting and it reduces the chances of encountering potential threats. Predators are less likely to attack individuals in busy areas where there are more witnesses. Unfortunately, this did not work for Romania in the 1970s, but nowadays it works. Number two, avoid shortcuts through secluded areas. Secluded areas, these provide cover for potential attackers and it limits your ability to seek help if needed. So stick to main streets and busy pathways. This will decrease your chances of being isolated and targeted. Number three, always stay alert. Be aware of your surroundings. It's crucial to spot potential threats. Avoid distractions like texting, changing your Spotify playlist, <laughs> things like that. Wearing your headphones. Ensure that you can react quickly to any suspicious activity, which helps with the next step. Walk with confidence. Chin up, sister. Walking confidently sends the message to a potential attacker that you are fully aware of what's a going on around you and the more confident you seem, the more likely an attacker will avoid you because if you get away, you can identify them. Heads up, chin up. It's statistically proven that predators are more likely to target individuals who appear vulnerable and unsure of themselves. Number five, trust your instincts, trust that gut. Your intuition is a very powerful tool, especially for recognizing danger. If something feels off or unsafe, trust your instincts and take action and just remove yourself from the situation. Because if nothing happens, fantastic, you're safe. Don't put yourself in that risk if you do not feel comfortable. Number six, carry a personal safety device, like a flashlight, a whistle. Whistles are fantastic, bust some eardrums. Personal safety alarms like the Birdie. This is not a paid advertisement. I own one and it's fantastic. So the Birdie, what it does is it emits a 130 decibel alarm. So when you pull the pin, it goes off and it's loud and there's a flashing light on it and there's a GPS tracking device that you can set to other phones. So when you pull that pin, other phones get the alert that you are in trouble. If someone approaches you and wants to rob you to steal your purse, or your bag or whatever you have, throw your wallet or whatever it is away from you. This is gonna create distance. Now, this other one is something that my grandparents taught me and it's to yell fire, help, fire because yelling fire makes other people more <laughs> worried about their own safety and they're more willing to come and investigate areas whereas yelling help, <sighs> unfortunately, some people might not want to get involved. And it's sad, but there's logic there. Humans can be selfish creatures. Fire, help, fire, help. Just scream, get attention. Be like Kevin McAllister on the streets of New York and just scream like a banshee. Number seven, keep your phone charged. A charged phone, this obviously, it allows you to call for help quickly in a case of an emergency. 
Number eight, let someone know your expected route. Even if you're just going like a five minute walk away, be like, hey, I'm walking to the 7-Eleven. I'll be back in five, 10 minutes. If I'm not back in 30, call me. And if you don't get a hold of me, call the police, <laughs> stuff like that. Just be cautious. I'm not trying to fear monger anyone. I'm not trying to say that you're not safe walking to the store. I just want you to be safe and take precautions if something ever happens. I care about you, fear cult. I truly do. I don't want people to be harmed in this world because you don't know there is a certified fruit cake strutting down the block. I just want you to be safe. Okay? Love you. Thank you for listening to the Ashley Lana Lullaby the Fear podcast public service announcement. <laughs> Let's continue. In July 1970, Eon hit rock bottom when he failed his final university exam. He was informed that he would have to repeat his fifth year. Eon explained that in his state of despair, he had reached a maximum because of his exams and the environment he was living in, where classmates and professors held him in contempt. On July 19th, around 2 a.m., he broke into a clothing store, stealing a striped suit, two jackets, and pants. Eon would later visit his father, Floria, at work, and when Eon tried to pass them off as a gift to his friend, Floria saw right through the lie. Eon admitted to his father that he broke into the store and stole the clothes. Floria insisted that he took the clothes and secretly send them back to the store. Days later, Eon attempted another robbery, but again, Eon was never caught. On the night of July 24, 1970, 19-year-old factory worker, Margarita Hanganu was making her way home after finishing her shift around 11 p.m. Unbeknownst to her, a man suddenly emerged from behind a parked truck, striking her across the head with a metal bar and snatching her bag containing her shoes and money. Eon took off running and Margarita gave chase after him. Luckily for her, two co-workers arrived on a motorcycle with a sidecar. They saw her bleeding and stopped her. They decided to take her to a hospital before any harm could be done. It was not until a year later that Margarita would be able to positively identify Ian Romaru as her attacker, recognizing him from a photograph and singling him out in a police lineup. Around 2 a.m. on November 23, 1970, Ian Romaru targeted a 47-year-old company manager. Her name was Olga Barateru. She had returned to her apartment complex after work. Despite being dropped off as usual by fellow employees, Olga encountered a broken elevator and had to climb up the stairs to the seventh floor. Eon attacked her on the second floor, striking her with a metal bar. Despite her struggle and cries for help, Eon dragged her down the stairs and continued the assault in front of the building before taking her down into the basement where he ripped off her clothes and raped her. Olga's screams were heard by a couple in a nearby flat. The wife had turned on the light and seen Olga being assaulted by the young man. It was the light that scared Eon and he stole Olga's bag and decided to run, leaving Olga lay semi-conscious on the concrete floor, her blood pooling around her. Hours later, at 7.22 a.m., she was finally discovered and taken to hospital. The following 1971 police statement is from Mihai Rade, the man who turned on the light in his flat that scared Ion Romaru during Olga Barateru's assault. Quote, During the night of November 23, 1970, after we went to bed, we heard two screams of a woman. Lifting my head off the pillow, I saw the head of a person passing under the window. I couldn't tell if it was a man or a woman because I was just waking up. I woke up and looked through the window, but couldn't see anything. Looking at the clock, I noticed it was 2 a.m. Because our daughter was pregnant, my wife went to go check on her. She was sleeping, so my wife went to the bathroom and turned on the light. Returning to bed, she said, who knows what drunkard passed by the window, after which we went back to sleep. Around 4.30 a.m. when I woke up to prepare for work, 
I entered the bathroom where I heard a prolonged moan. I washed up and got dressed. I didn't go check on who was moaning out there, although I could hear it right at the back of my apartment. I can't explain why I didn't go. My daughter also woke up and I told her about the moans that I had heard at 2 a.m. and again at 4.30 a.m. And then she said that she was afraid to go out of the block. At 5 a.m., I went outside of the apartment together with my daughter. There was no light in the lobby or on the inside of the staircase, but I could see on the entrance steps near the door, a pool of blood. I avoided the pool of blood altogether with my daughter and walked to the tram stop. When I returned, I saw in the alley about five meters away from the block, a woman's shoe and nearby the steps, there was another woman's shoe. I entered my apartment and told my wife that I saw a pool of blood in the front and two women's shoes, also telling her that we should alert the militia and the ambulance. My wife told me to go to the office and take care of my business, and she would wake up my son-in-law. I don't know what happened afterwards, and I also want to point out that when my wife told me to go to work, she also said that she would wake up my son-in-law in order to wake up another neighbor to go check. Then she would alert the militia. I mentioned that because I didn't go out and check who was on the back of the block near the flat because I was in a hurry to go to work. In December 1970, Eon's 52-year-old father, Floria, had recently begun a serious relationship with his mistress, a 44-year-old woman named Florida Kellin. When Eon joined them for Christmas dinner, tensions were high as the two failed to get along. Eon found the woman to be assertive, while Florida quickly picked up on Eon's lack of interest in being friendly with her, stonewalling her completely. Eon only spoke to her when he was told to by his father. Back in Carabia, Eon's mother, Ekaterina, was troubled by her son's behavior. She knew that he was living alone at the Nikolai Institute University and that he had a collection of knives and hatchets, and this raised concern for his father. Despite the fact that Eon was taking better care of his appearance, showering and cutting his hair, his father couldn't help shake the feeling that there was a connection between Eon and the rumored vampire of Bucharest among the working class. At 2 a.m. on February 16, 1971, Georgita Svetku, a 19-year-old assistant waitress, was on her way home after finishing her shift near the university. As she got off the bus and walked along the streets near her residence, she encountered a man, Eon Romaru. He was standing with his back against the street sign, hiding his face in his hands. As Georgita cautiously passed by, Eon lunged towards her, striking her with a metal bar. Her cries for help woke up nearby neighbors who switched on their porch lights, causing Eon to flee the scene after grabbing her handbag. A witness saw the attack, but did not help. He watched the poor woman struggle alone, crawling along the cold, wet pavement. Georgita managed to gather her belongings and slowly limp back to her home. Upon recounting the incident to her husband, Georgita collapsed onto the carpet and fell into a coma. She was swiftly taken to the hospital for urgent medical attention, where the 19-year-old underwent emergency treatment for her injuries, and luckily, Georgita survived. On the rainy morning of February 17, 1971, 18-year-old assistant waitress, Elizabeth Floria, left work with two male coworkers. They boarded the night bus together and sat behind the driver. As her coworkers got off at their designated stops, the bus gradually emptied leaving Elizabetha alone with a young man who had flashed his bus pass and went to stand at the back of the bus. Unaware of the man's intentions, Elizabetha reached her stop, just 20 meters away from her home. She had no idea that the man had followed her off the bus, and he was now trailing behind her. Ian grabbed the bottom of her trench coat and forcefully pulled her around. With a menacing growl, he demanded that she stay put so he could have his way with her. Elizabetha's terrified screams pierced the quiet morning, Eon violently threw her against a nearby gate, desperate to silence her. He proceeded to brutally stab her 14 times in the head, hand, and right leg with his knife. 
a young man named Nikolai Popescu, who lived nearby, opened his window and shouted down, what are you doing? Are you killing her? Eon stopped stabbing Elizabeth and fled the courtyard. She crawled towards a nearby bench and sat alone, with no one coming to her aid. Soon, a police car drove by and took her to the hospital, where she would remain in intensive care for 17 days. Later on that morning of February 17th, around 7.55 a.m., Eon went to the hospital, where he received treatments for the cuts on his hands and fingers. In the early morning on March 5th, 1971, 31-year-old Fernika Elai was walking home in the snow. She was looking forward to spending time with her husband and four-year-old daughter, Mariana. However, her joy was tampered by the memory of her co-worker and friend, Elisabetta Flora's recent attack less than a month ago, which had left her feeling anxious about her own journey home from work. Many co-workers have been talking about the mysterious attacker targeting waitresses on their late-night journeys home, while the police did nothing to stop it. Women started traveling in groups or seeking rides, but there were instances when they had to walk alone. Unfortunately, this was one of those nights for Fernica. Walking down the well-lit street in a community of townhouses, she was suddenly ambushed by Ian Romaru, who emerged from the courtyard bushes. With a swift blow to her head using a metal bar, he rendered her unconscious and dragged her to a dark corner. There, he callously stripped off her clothes with his knife, leaving them in a heap next to her motionless body. This was the first time Eon experienced a fully unconscious woman to himself. As he raped the poor woman, he bit into the skin of her breasts and thighs, tearing out large chunks of bleeding flesh which were never found at the crime scene, and he left semen all over her body. When Eon was satisfied, he stole Fernika's watch and bag before running away, leaving the unconscious woman's body naked to die in the snow. Later that morning, tenants of the complex discovered the dead body and called the police. Authorities arrived and collected evidence, including blood and tooth prints. After the tragic murder of Fernika Elai, the police began to draw connections between the previous assaults on women in Bucharest. It became apparent that they were dealing with a psychopath, a sick individual whose MO was a mentally ill sexual predator involved in theft and rape. Police records indicate that over 300 mentally ill sexual predators were interviewed as a part of the investigation. It wasn't until the next murder that authorities would realize they were dealing with a serial killer. Floria Romaru, Eon's father, grew increasingly worried about his son, who had become completely isolated from those around him. Eon was living alone on the university grounds, contemplating starting a new semester. He completely withdrawn from social interactions, and this concerned his professors. His father was summoned to the school's office for a discussion. The teachers told him, quote, He is mad. He cut himself with a knife. He has no friends, no women friends, and it would be good to marry him off. Floria questioned his son regarding the injuries. Eon only lied and said that he cut himself on his window, which Floria knew was untrue. On April 9, 1971, Georgita Popa, a 35-year-old wife and mother of a four-year-old daughter, was leaving her job around 2 a.m. when she was brutally attacked by Eon Romaru. Using a hatchet and a knife, Eon struck her in the head and stabbed her multiple times, inflicting a total of 48 wounds on her body. He dragged her into a courtyard where he proceeded to rape her as she passed away. In a disturbing act of violence, Eon then viciously assaulted her lifeless body by biting into her breasts and vagina, tearing away flesh and consuming it, followed by drinking the blood from the wounds. This is what the fear cults say, a time for a hanging! So the police began investigating the connection between the murders of Elizabeth Flora and Georgita Popa as well as the unsolved cases of murder or attempted murder cases on record. 
They concluded that the attacks on Elena Oprah and Olga Barato, these names, you guys, I'm trying so hard. <laughs> I don't speak Romanian and they look beautiful on paper, but they're so hard to pronounce. <laughs> Let's try this again. The police concluded that the attacks on Elena Oprah and Olga Baratero were the same suspect. The MO was the same between each case and they knew that all the attacks were by the same man, but they didn't have a face. And this is one of those scenarios where unless it was you, you truly can't comprehend the exact emotions going through the survivors' heads. Like obviously people wanted this criminal caught. However, the citizens, they don't wanna get involved with the corrupt authorities. They were terrified of being wrongly accused for coming forward with information because that was an issue during this time. To make it more horrible, survivors were victim shamed and terrified. No matter what they said, no one would take them seriously for being sexually assaulted and raped. Police would wonder, well, if the sexual assault was so bad, then why were multiple witnesses just watching? It must not have been that bad if no one helped. Bitch. <laughs> so many young women, they were being raped on the streets and getting pregnant because of these rapists. The rapists were not being searched by authorities. And in 1966, Romania outlawed abortions completely and all forms of contraceptives because the Romanian government saw a population decline, which resulted in the fall of their economy, which depended on cheap labor. So the state ruled that women were failing their reproductive duty to the country and therefore needed to be controlled. Because of this, there were many victims who never came forward with information in fear of being shamed for putting themselves in a situation allowing themselves to be raped. I know, don't even get me started, moving on. Since there was a psychopathic criminal on the loose who had already murdered someone, the police had to show that they were doing something because they weren't sure if this guy has already killed or was planning to kill again. Operation Volturo Eagle was strategically put into place to increase security around Bucharest. 6,000 men from various law enforcement agencies were employed to patrol the streets at night. They were in cars, motorcycles, by foot, and they were in buses undercover. They were trying. Hospital, hotel, and bar staff were all put on high alert. The different law enforcements, they had to work together with Romanian Securitate on security. Now, what these people are, are operatives of the general direction of the people's security, more commonly known as state security. But they like to go by Securitate, which is awkward to say, but I'ma say it. This only complicated the situation. Citizens were concerned about the suspicious behavior of the militias and the content of the recruitment. According to Romanian reports at the time, the Securitate was not very forgiving with anyone involved in crimes, whether it be witnesses, people involved, like they, they were harsh from the get-go, which prevented citizens from being good Samaritans in the first place. In the search for the vampire of Bucharest, Ionomaru, a total of 2,500 arrests were made and over 8,000 individual background checks were done. But Ionomaru, the little slippery slug snake snitch that he is, was able to fly under the police radar. Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> what did I even say? As documented by hospital reports, Eon admitted himself to the plastic surgery hospital for an operation on April 29th, May 3rd, and May 5th for open cuts on his hands, fingers, that were reopened after each attack. So despite the authorities inspecting each person coming in and out of hospitals, 
Eon slipped through the cracks many times, even though according to hospital staff, Eon caused a lot of attention. He was difficult, filthy, and very disrespectful to doctors and staff. They would give him stitches, he would pull them out and try to do them himself, and then they would have to repeat the process. Eon's father, Floria, he knew that something suspicious was going on with his son. Eon is a psychopath who was fully able to comprehend what he was doing was wrong, which means he's not criminally insane. Here's an example taken from a testimony given by Father Floria on May 28, 1971. Floria explained that on April 15, 1971, he visited Eon in the hospital and Eon asked him to go to his home to grab specific clothes from a locker to wash it. Some of these articles had dirt stains and a lot of blood on them. Suspicious. So when Floria returned to the hospital on April 22nd, he asked Eon what the stains were from. Eon said that he cut himself. Mm-hmm. Floria tried to say that he had gotten upset with his son and would eventually take a hatchet and a knife, but Eon stole it back. And Eon was leaving money large amounts of money at his mother's house in Carabria and his house. So his father knows all this information, but he's just kind of like beating around the situation to make it seem like he knows nothing about it. So what I'm getting is that Flory is trying to distance himself from the knowledge of his son's behavior in case one day he gets caught. He's playing the long game, but I digress. Let's continue. On May 1st, 1971, at 12.45 a.m., 22-year-old Stana Saracen was on her way home after work, riding the night bus. As she arrived at her bus stop, she noticed a thin young man approaching her quickly. The man was Ionomaru. He reached out and grabbed Stana by the crotch, prompting her to react by slapping him across the head. In response, Ion viciously punched her in the face, causing her to fall to the ground. Stana's cries for help alerted a witness who shouted at the attacker from a nearby balcony, causing Ion to let her go and fleeing into the darkness. Subsequently, Eon was included in a police lineup, but Stana never was able to identify him as the attacker. However, Eon provided a detailed description of the attack during questioning, conveniently omitting any mention of the witness who had intervened and scared him off. On May 4, 1971, Miela Ursu, a 39-year-old wife and assistant to the optics department of the Faculty of Physics at the University of Bucharest, was leaving work late around 11.30 p.m., she called her family friend to inform her of her plans to leave. Despite her friend's warnings about the dangers of being out and alone at that hour, Mihila mentioned that she needed to make a stop before heading home. She had seven cats being looked after by a couple nearby who were also pet owners themselves, and Mihila needed to ensure their well-being, especially as that couple had decided to increase the boarding fees. With news of a serial killer on the loose circulating, Mihila's friend urged her to go straight home to her husband and check on her cats during daylight hours. Around 1 a.m. on May 5th, Ion Romaro was stalking the streets looking for his next victim. He found a woman who he asked if she would have sex with him. Ion later explained that she only laughed at him and then people walked by. Soon after, he spotted Mihaela Ursu walking down the next street. Mihaela was walking alone under her umbrella when Ion Romaro approached her and struck her over the head with a metal bar, instantly ending her life. Ion then callously dragged her lifeless body into a nearby courtyard where he proceeded to commit heinous acts of raping her lifeless form and biting into her neck. Mihaela's lifeless body was discovered the following day, marking another tragic and brutal murder at the hands of the perpetrator. One important item that was left at the scene was a medical diagnosis sheet. Unfortunately, the writing was washed away, but the letterhead was still visible, and it read, 
Bucharest Students Hospital. On the morning of May 5th, Maria Lordacci, a 42-year-old tram driver and mother of seven, four of whom were minors at the time, was getting ready to leave her home around 4 a.m. As she stepped out into the street, she was suddenly attacked by Ian Romaru, who struck her across the right side of her head. Maria screamed as she ran down the street with Eon close behind her, relentlessly hitting her with a metal rod. In a stroke of luck, Eon accidentally dropped the rod, giving Maria the opportunity to escape safely. Eon took himself to the hospital. He was covered head to toe in blood and mud, which nurses questioned what happened. Eon said that he had just performed surgery on a horse. Despite the traumatic experience, Maria Lordacci would later show incredible bravery by testifying, quote, I am in a very bad state. I shake and cry and all the body feels faint and I forget things easily. As for example, if I set to do something one day, I'll forget what I was supposed to do. Forensic investigators at the university confirmed that the bite marks found on the crime scenes match those left in the cases of Frenika Alai, Olga Baratu, and Georgita Popo. Witnesses were brought in to create composite sketches of the suspect, which would resemble Ion Romaru. Ion appeared to be escalating his attacks, with more frequent assaults on women. On May 7th, he viciously attacked Margarita Inache, leaving her in a coma with severe cranial cerebral and facial trauma, including wounds to her face, tongue, dental fractures, and head injuries. After 60 days in the hospital, Margarita managed to recover enough to identify Ian Romaru from a lineup of 12 pictures as her assailant. Eon would later confess that he was unable to sexually assault her as a nearby watchman had raised the alarm. Just two hours after the brutal attack on Margarita Inache, another young waitress, Alina Belusi, was walking home from work in the early morning when she noticed Ian Romaru following her, dressed in a long trench coat and hat. Feeling uneasy, she tried to catch the bus, but she missed it. Eon continued to stalk her as she searched for another bus, and the next thing she knew, she woke up hours later in the rain, disorientated and freezing cold. Elena rushed to nearby apartments, desperately seeking help, but most of the residents shut their doors in her face. Eventually, a compassionate woman on the street assisted Elena in getting medical attention. Despite suffering severe cranial injuries, Elena later identified Ian Romaru as her assailant. Despite the efforts of Operation Voltural Eagle, the public remained reluctant to get involved in the ongoing case. Eon's escalating criminal behavior led him to grow bolder in his attacks. Later that same evening, around 10.25 p.m., he targeted two women, Uliana and Constanta. Eon emerged from the darkness as the two women were making their way home. He viciously struck Uliana over the head with a hatchet and continued to assault her as Constanta watched in horror. With a menacing gaze, Eon confronted Constanta, who fled the scene past another woman and sought help from a nearby guard. Eon callously stole items from the scene before making a swift getaway. Uliana was rushed to the hospital and was diagnosed with craniocerebral head trauma. Lieutenant Colonel Eon Santia of the militia grew suspicious of the investigation. He feared that the investigation was being compromised by the Securitate, who were coercing migrant workers into confessing to the crimes. Lieutenant Colonel took charge and decided to delve deeper into the case, focusing on a medical diagnosis sheet found at the crime of Mihaila Ursu. He enlisted the help of the Center for Criminology where his sister worked, and together they discovered that the sheet was a sick note from the student's hospital, bearing the legible numbers four and six. With this crucial information, Lieutenant Colonel formed a team of investigators who painstakingly sifted through 30,000 medical records to match the numbers four and six. Out of the 187 sick leaves that corresponded with the numbers four and six, one of 17 names on the list 
was Ian Romaru, the veterinary medicine student. With the list of suspects narrowed down to 17, investigators ran interviews 24-7. It didn't take long for detectives to label Ian Romaru as their primary suspect. The militia had done the hard work, and now the Securitate had to coordinate a stakeout. The militia were upset that the Securitate had stepped up to take credit, and now wanted the arrest to make them look as though they organized the entire investigation. The militia wanted to make first direct contact with approaching Eon in the situation like questioning and not give off the suspicion that he was their primary suspect. Doctors looked into Eon's medical history and discovered that he was diagnosed with unstable psychopathy and highly likely to have a violent reaction. It was decided that the Securitate officers were to make a swift arrest. On May 27, 1971, around 1 p.m., Eon Romaru was arrested in his university residence. He had returned home to find officers rummaging through his belongings, and they took the bag he was carrying, which contained a hatchet and knife wrapped in a red towel. While in custody, Eon believed that the officers were going to torture information out of him, as he had not yet confessed. But he was surprised when the men treated him with respect and fed him a decent meal. Unbeknownst to Eon, professionals wanted to study him, as they had never encountered a killer like him before. Specialists were brought in and obtained dental impressions identical to those on the victims. Human blood not belonging to Eon was also found in his belongings. During interrogation, Eon remained quiet, answering only in shrugs and short responses. On the evening of May 27th, while Eon was being questioned, he saw his father being escorted into questioning across the hall. Eon gave him an ugly look, and his father seemed to be on edge. Two days after the interviews, the investigators discovered that Floria was a violent man who beat his wife and children. He worked in Bucharest as a bus driver, specifically at night the same buses that his son Eon had taken to stalk his victims. Floria accidentally let it slip that he knew about the attack on Uliana on May 7th, as well as he was keeping Eon's money that he had stolen from his victims. Detectives discovered that Floria had been the person washing Eon's bloody clothing and hiding his crimes. Floria was taking them to a cleaner using a fake surname, Floria Vranescu. Floria told investigators that he had no idea about his son's crimes, and even claimed that he had tried to take the hatchet and knife away from his son once. However, there was no physical proof that Floria actually took part in the attacks and therefore could not be arrested. On May 31st, 1971, the Romaru family home in Caracal was searched, revealing a pair of earrings belonging to survivor Uliana. The following day, Eon's mother's house in Corabia was also searched, causing her distress. Ekaterina, Eon's mother, had anticipated the search and had traveled to Caracal to hide Eon's knives and money from the previous robberies. Eon's mother was taken in for questioning, which lasted 24 hours. Eon was initially very hesitant to discuss his crimes with the police. Eventually, he confessed when the investigators shifted the focus to his health rather than the crimes. He admitted to attacking, raping, and robbing women who rejected him, detailing the crimes he was accused of. With specific information only the perpetrator would know, Eon was charged with four counts of aggravated murder. Prosecutors feared the defense might pursue the insanity plea to avoid the death penalty, which would result in Eon being committed to a mental hospital for life rather than the death sentence. Beer cult, this is it. So prosecutors had to consult the psychiatric team that was assigned to evaluate Ian Romaru after his arrest to determine three critical factors necessary for imposing the death penalty for his crimes. Now, these factors included they had to establish whether Eon suffered from a mental illness that impaired his ability to understand the nature of his crimes, determining if any psychiatric conditions affected his overall awareness, 
They had to assert whether Eon was in a state of total or partial consciousness at the time of the attacks, and from there, the appropriate medical strategies to move forward with. A group of six doctors, all part of the Committee of Psychiatric Expertise from the Neurology Institute, were tasked with assessing Eon's mental state and responsibility for his actions. They conducted an intense investigation that went into Ion Romaru's family history, his social background, and this included towns where he lived and the people that grew up with him. Doctors, they ended up concluding that Ion's behavior had escaped correction, but confirmed that Ion was not clinically insane. And despite his antisocial personality disorder and abusive childhood influence on his personality, he knew exactly what he was doing and he knew it was wrong. And therefore he was in a clear state of mind, which could not be corrected. Professor Pedescu, he was the most senior member of the doctors and he stated the following, quote, we consider Romaru responsible for his deeds because from the point of view of his disorders, he was never entered into the category of those disorders of psychotic intensity with delirium, with hallucinations, who act with no motivation of any kind, end quote. The doctors examining Ion Romaru's case, they emphasized that each night Ion purposely set out with the intent to commit the acts of rape and robbery against women. They concluded that Eon was a career criminal who was not acting out of an irresistible impulse. He was fully aware that his actions were wrong. His deliberate seeking out of weapons for his crimes demonstrated a conscious decision-making process in his head. The psychiatrist pointed out that his aberrant personality traits were influenced not only by his genetic factors, but also by environmental factors, indicating a complex interplay that shaped his behavior. And this is what I've said in past episodes. I believe that nature hands you the gun and nurture pulls the trigger, which is why early intervention in mental health is important. And I cannot stress this next part enough. Not everyone with a mental illness will resort to criminal activity. Signed, sealed, stamped, sent, delivered. On September 1st, 1971, Ian Romaru's trial commenced and was overseen by a panel of judges. It lasted for a total of two months. Evidence was presented and it was analyzed during the proceedings. Survivors who took the stand to testify against Eon were met with his intense and unblinking gaze, which seemed to prey on them, bringing back the night they were attacked. In Eon's final address to the court, he made a statement that made the room fall silent. Eon stated that his father, Floria Romaru, had participated in some of the crimes, urging Eon to rape and rob women, and that Floria would follow nearby in his car so they both could make a quick getaway. Not only that, but in an earlier testimony, Maria Lodorce, who was attacked on May 5th, 1971, was unable to identify Ian Romaru as her attacker. However, after looking through newspapers and media photos provided by police, Maria was able to recognize her assailant. And she identified 52-year-old Floria Romaru. During the trial, officers in the courtroom arrested Floria, despite the lack of physical evidence linking him to the crimes. Because of this, Floria was later released but investigators continued to look into his potential involvement. Ian Romaro was charged with 23 repeated offenses and sentenced to 219 years in prison. Additionally, he was found guilty of four counts of aggravated murder and was sentenced to execution. The public responded positively to the sentencing and Ian was forcibly removed from the court as he protested. Ian requested an appeal during which he attempted to blame his father for his crimes. However, the appeal was rejected. On October 23rd, 1971, 25-year-old Ian Romaru was taken to be executed by firing squad. His final words, fetch my father, he is the guilty one and I want to live, were spoken before shots were fired. Despite attempting to dodge the bullets, 
Aeon finally died of multiple gunshot wounds to the back. Following the death of Ian Romaru and the suspicion surrounding his father Floria's potential involvement in his crimes, Floria faced intense scrutiny from authorities. Many senior militiamen believe that Floria might have been at least an accomplice to his son's crimes. Close to the anniversary of Eon's execution, the lifeless body of 54-year-old Floria Romaru was discovered on September 23, 1972, having been pushed off of a moving train. Speculation arose that the authorities might have taken the matters into their own hands, but this was never officially confirmed. Floria's body was taken to the Institute of Forensic Medicine for an autopsy. During the examination, scientists compared Floria's fingerprints to previous unsolved cases and discovered a match. Additionally, shoe prints matching Floria's size 42 and a half military boots were found at the scene of a 28-year-old cold case involving the deaths of four young girls in their basement apartment in Bucharest in 1944, having their heads bashed in with a blunt object, a year before Ion Romaru was born. This raised further suspicions about Floria's potential involvement in the unsolved crimes from the past. Following the decision to sentence Ion Romaru to death, the sick psychiatrist published an article to reassure the public that all ethical measures had been taken to justify Ian Romaru's execution. The psychiatric doctors released the following statement in 1972 regarding their view on Ian Romaru. The abnormal is the man who has possibilities, but has no scruples. But, I repeat, has possibilities. We do not contest Romaru's abnormality, but the abnormal person is responsible for his deeds. That is the case of Ian Romaru and his father, Floria Romaru, the serial killers of Bucharest. Talk about worst case scenario. Like those poor victims had, they all had witnesses, but no one wanted to help. Everyone was too scared to help. Another one for the books, Fear Cult. There'll be more, many more. They're coming for me now. And then they'll come for you. The never-ending quest to find a truly scary movie continues with the 2005 French neo-noir psychological horror film Cache, or known as Hidden. The plot follows an upper-middle-class couple who receive a series of anonymous tapes on their step, and these tapes reveal that the couple was being stalked. So check it out. It's great that The NeverEnding Quest has reignited the love for horror films for some people. So follow on Instagram at Lullaby the Fear Podcast to check out more. And thank you for listening to this week's episode. Sweet dreams. Lights out. Lights <laughs> out.